In this first hour today. The court considers that with regard to the present situation, Israel must, in accordance with its obligations under the Genocide Convention, in relation to Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention, in particular, A, killing groups, members of the group, B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, and D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. The Court recalls that these acts fall within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention when they are committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part the group as such. The Court is also of the view that Israel must take measures within its power to prevent and punish the direct and public incitement to commit genocide in relation to the members of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip. That was the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, the UN's top court. It has now ordered Israel to prevent genocide in Gaza, but stop short of ordering a ceasefire. Please be joined now by the noted public intellectual author, professor, bookstore owner, and Mark Lamont Hill YouTube channel host, Mark Lamont Hill. Mark, how are you today, sir? I am good, my brother. Happy New Year to you, man. It's so good to hear your voice. Happy New Year to you. My first time talking to you this year. Uh, it's good to hear your voice and di- delighted, of course, to have you uh, back on this program. So um, I just played, as you heard uh, for the audience, um, a, a soundbite of the uh, the ICJ and its ruling on Friday, again, suggesting or saying, ordering, in fact, Israel to, to, to not engage in genocide. Uh, but, right. but 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 exactly. But 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 stopping short of calling for a ceasefire before we jump into this conversation, there are a lot of pieces to this. It's not just what's happening in Israel uh, and Palestine. Um, uh, there's a huge article you probably saw yesterday on the, on the, in, the, in the New York Times about hundreds of black faith leaders and what they're yeah. saying and doing about this huge article in the Times yesterday, the New York Times. Uh, we're going to talk about that piece. Uh, we'll talk about three U.S. soldiers who were killed in Jordan in a drone attack that the U.S. says uh, was launched by uh, some Iran-backed militia. Uh, President Biden has said he will respond in our own place, our own time, in our own way, but be sure we are going to respond. That means we risk widening this war, depending on what President Biden does. So there are a lot of other tentacles. There's a food shortage right now. Another major story out today, there is a hunger. There's a hunger crisis in Gaza. Uh, they are calling it a humanitarian calamity because of the blockade. Uh, right. Food is not getting now to Palestinians, and they are dying. They are starving. Many of them are now eating animal feed, we are told, just to survive. So a lot of tentacles that offshoot this story. Watching my clock now, Mark, I lied. Let me ask you to hold one second uh, now that I've set the frame for all that we want to talk about in this hour. And then and there's more. But that's the frame that we're in. So there's new news, uh, disturbing news. Uh, uh, today about what's happening in Israel and Hamas, uh, between Israel and Hamas, I should say, and that decision by the ICJ on Friday uh, is resonating. People are talking about it. What, what does it really mean? Do they have the power to actually enforce that? Is it a joke? Is it a mockery? What do we make of the UN's high court saying no genocide, but, uh, but, but, but coming short of calling for a ceasefire? Is that like oxymoronic? Uh, yeah, okay, we'll talk about it. Our guest is Mark Lamont Hill. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. From the Merck Park with love, love, love this love. is Tavis Smiley. 
Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. Let's get started with Mark Lamont Hill right now. Uh, Mark, good to have you on the program. As, uh, so I tried to set the frame for this. We'll walk through it uh, piece, uh, one piece at a time. But let me just start, though, uh, getting your thoughts on this big story that broke on Friday. Uh, the uh, ICJ uh, demanding that Israel not engage in genocide, but stopping short of calling for a ceasefire. How'd you read that? I read that as as uh, powerful a decision as we could have imagined. And, and for our audience that's listening here, I want them to really appreciate not just the power of it, but the beauty of it, that South Africa, a nation with such a deep and painful history of racial apartheid, of genocide, of violence, of ethnic cleansing, of all the things, stood up in solidarity with the Palestinian people and took a Western nation, I'm using Western in quotes here, but effectively a Western nation, certainly a first world and powerful nation, to the international court. You know, we often talk about the difference between being a wounded herder and a wounded healer. You know, you have nations like Germany that have tried to atone for its awful actions in the Nazi Holocaust by shielding Israel, by shielding the Jewish state from accountability. Uh, And then you got South Africa says we're going to account for our ugly history, not by shielding the victims and allowing the victims to be herders, but instead allow instead of forcing everybody to be accountable and to produce justice. And when we saw that court decision, fifteen to one, excuse me, sixteen to one, fifteen to two, on on these various measures, that tells you a lot. I mean, other than Uganda, which we can we can talk about later, uh, just about every nation except Israel, who was a spot on the court, stood up and, and said that there needs to be accountability for this. Um, now, I think you're right. Uh, there is, it is noteworthy that they didn't say ceasefire. But I believe that that's more of a procedural matter than it is an ideological one. Um, and I'll be specific about that. What mm-hmm. the court said, because I want, to, I want people to understand what the court said. The court said that it, it is, they disregarded or dismissed Israel's claim that there was no, that uh, South Africa didn't have the, the standing to make the claim. They acknowledged that there was a dispute. They acknowledged that they did have jurisdiction. And they acknowledged prima facie, that means on its face, that there is a plausible case for genocide. It would be like if I were in a court in L.A. and, and I were being arraigned for bank robbery. And they looked at the – and I'm saying my lawyer is like, no, I'll drop the charges. Y'all ain't got no case. And the prosecution's like, well, look at the camera. That's that's Mark Lamont. He, he got a Mark Lamont Hill official YouTube T-shirt on. Look at him. That's him. <laughs> like, that's him. <laughs> we, we ain't saying you did it, but you, there's enough evidence to say that you that that you might have did it, and that we can proceed with the hearing. That's what that's what Friday was about. They were saying it's plausible that there's genocide here. They even went so far as to quote Israeli officials and Israeli spokespeople and said, "Look, the, the, y'all said this. The, the, it's plausible." But the reason why they didn't say a ceasefire then which is a great question that everyone's asking, is, I think, a technical one, uh, and one that I think Israel raised quite masterfully, and that is Hamas was not party to these proceedings. Mm-hmm. Hamas was not party to the ruling. Therefore, if they would have called for a ceasefire, Israel's point was, we would be legally bound to not, have, to not fire a weapon, and Hamas could keep firing without being in violation of the law. And so you would be, fundam- you would be effectively disarming us. So basically what the court, even in self-defense, so what the court said was, okay, we're not going to tell you to the ceasefire. What we are going to say is here are all the things you can't do. Mm-hmm. And in that soundbite that you played, Tavis, all the things they said you couldn't do are literally 
quote, quotes word for word from the U.N. conventions on genocide. So they, they said, look, we're not saying you committed genocide, but these are the four things gen- genocide are and don't do none of them. Mm-hmm. And, and send us a regular report demonstrating how you're not doing genocide. Yeah. I can get no better than that. Yeah, I, I could read this. I could read this as a as a victory for Israel. I don't need to unpack that with you. If I say to you, um, I read this, uh, Mark Lamont Hill, as a victory for Israel, you respond how? Um, it's certainly uh, a public. I wouldn't call it a victory, but it's certainly a point. Mm-hmm. It's it's it's, it's it, they, they certainly got a shot in there. You know what I mean? It was it wasn't a knockout. And and it it gives them public relations room to say, see, the court had the opportunity to say ceasefire, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 that's true. But I think that was the court being principled. But it, but it doesn't it doesn't negate the fact that all of the things they told Israel not to do, Israel is doing, and therefore if <laughs> they have to still stop doing them if they are be in, if they were to be in compliance with the court. Yep. You singled out Uganda a moment ago. Explain to the audience why you did that. Uh, the, the judge from Uganda was the only judge. Uh, when you look at all the all the, the rulings about about and the emergency measures about about the plausibility, all of these all the measures, the court had seventeen judges and and they um, they all ruled uh, in, in in favor of these measures. The one dissenting judge out of the seventeen, other than Israel's own judge, which you know you would expect, mm-hmm. is Judge uh, Seb- uh, Julia Sebatende uh, from Uganda. Um, she basically sided with Israel on, on, on um, all six measures adopted by the court. Now, it's, it's worth noting that the Ugandan government said that that's her own opinion, and they do not reflect the, the opinions of the court. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's not a coincidence. They did, that, that wasn't just a pro forma thing. They, they made a statement saying, basically, like, that ain't us. Um, now, why she made that decision, I don't know. But what, what I, what I, there are arguments about why Uganda might make that decision. You know, countries with their own histories of genocide and violence often don't want to be on the record establishing precedents that they themselves then can't meet later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> point. I'm laughing, but it's not funny. I take your point though. They that was that was a that was a very practical decision. Right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. If my wife starts talking about something, man, you be so and so ain't take out the trash, her husband ain't take out the trash, man. I would leave my husband if he didn't take out I don't, I don't say nothing because there's a good chance in the next two weeks the trash ain't getting taken out. So I ain't saying nothing. Yeah, I understand. I understand. Let me circle back right quick because uh, I, I want to cover more ground here. But let me circle back though to the point you made that I think is a powerful point. And I was, I'm not going to say I was shocked, uh, but I was, I was, I was, um, it got my attention. And I found myself in conversation with a number of people when this uh, came to the fore. As a matter of fact, we have been, my producers have been in contact with, we've been on the phone trying to work out a time. Obviously, there's a huge time difference, huge time gap. We're trying to work out a conversation with the lawyer uh, who represented South Africa in this case. Uh, I, I want to get him on, on this program. We're almost there, just trying to find the time. It's, it's Again, it's a huge time difference between here and South Africa. But we're, we're working on that, trying to get this, uh, trying to get him on this program. I want to hear directly from him why he, uh, in, uh, on behalf of South Africa, brought this case. But I, but I want to just go back to the point you make because we were, you know, you ran through it and that was, that's cool, but I want to go back now because it, it meant something to me. It said something to me that of all the nations in the world, it was South Africa who brought this case. Tell me more about how you read that. I, I read it first. First, I read it through the lens of a tradition. There's a long-standing tradition of black folk, brown folk, third world folk um, struggling together. And at a moment where people try to tell us how divided we are and how different we are, 
and how uninterested we are in each other's struggle, it was a beautiful moment to see something that begins in the 50s in the Bandung Conference, you know, with the non-line movement, where people who weren't first world nations, where people who weren't European nations say, we got to stick together. It's what Malcolm X was talking about in Message to the Grassroots in in 63. You know, is this idea that, hey, we got to be together here. We got to struggle together, and we got to we got to organize together. We got to build together to imagine a, a different kind of possibility for what the world could look like. To me, this was an extension of that tradition. Mm-hmm. I also saw again a nation that had just wrestled with its own tortured history, and it's still wrestling with. South Africa ain't nowhere near perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, apartheid is over, but who got the land? Who got the power? Who got the buildings? Is a whole lot different than who got the presidency. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, 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 so I'm not I'm not romanticizing South Africa, but what South Africa said is. We've seen this before. We know what this is. And it's especially important because when 18 human rights organizations came out and said that Israel was an apartheid state, a lot of people from Alan Dershowitz to to members of the Knesset in Israel said it is insulting to compare what's happening in Israel to apartheid South Africa. Well, now South Africa is saying, you know what, this is <laughs> yeah. looking real familiar. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't tell them they got it wrong. Mm-hmm. And so it, so, so it sends a message that way as well, you know? I think I think it's a powerful message. And then finally, again, I, I think, again, the idea of saying, look, we're going to respond to our tortured history by, not by, not by, it, it's like an absentee daddy to come back home. You know what I mean? You can be, uh, sometimes you think the way to be a good dad now is to let your kids do whatever they want, mm-hmm. you know, as a way of making up for it. That's not, the, that, that ain't, you ain't doing your kids no favors. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Germany's approach has been to effectively shield Israel from all accountability in the international forum. Same thing the United States does. South Africa said, no, the moral thing to do is to say never again, to never allow anybody to be victim to what we were victim to and, and, what, and what black South Africans were victim to. No, nobody should go through this. And that's what we saw in the court on Friday. Yeah. Um, it, it struck me for a number of reasons, not the least of which, and you've kind of you know, you teed this up nicely, um, not the least of which is a reminder of who we are as African people at our best. I mean, all, all, all of the diaspora, who we are at our best. Here these South Africans are, to your point, who recognize very clearly what's happening in Palestine because it happened to them during apartheid. And of all the nations in the world, they are the ones who step up and say, we will not let this happen on our watch. It looks awfully familiar, quoting Mark Lamont Hill. And so we're going we're gonna to step up and we're going to speak out about this and we're going to take this to the, to, the, to the ICJ and see if we can't make a case here. It reminds me of the same thing here stateside. I made the point a few weeks ago on this program, maybe a week or two ago on this program, that this country is, is asking black folk once again, Joe Biden is begging black folk once again, not just to save his candidacy, but to save this democracy. Time and yes, time man. again, black folk have been called upon throughout history to help save this democracy, t- sometimes from itself. And so everybody yeah. knows that Biden is begging black folk to get in line. The South Carolina primary is days away from now. And everybody's turning to black folk. Everybody's scared about whether black folk are going to turn out for Joe Biden. Can he can he pull the black vote? Are his numbers soft? Are black men going to desert him and go to Donald Trump in the 20th percentile? Everybody's focusing on this black vote. Why? Because we are always the ones who've been the conscience of this country and indeed the globe. Uh, and we're the ones who time and time again are asked to save the democracy as we are now from authoritarianism and potential anarchy if Donald Trump gets reelected. It's a powerful story, again, Mark, of who we are, I believe, at our best. You put it perfectly. I mean, that, that I, I can't say no better. I can't even add nothing to that. I mean, that, that's the beauty of it. That's who we are at our best. 
and it ain't and like you said it ain't domestic it's international yeah. it's, it's who african people are i love it yep yep um let me let me get let me get back to the middle east right quick before i move forward um so the un high court its highest court had this decision to make on friday everybody in the world talking about that news on the other side, um, the U.N. is in some trouble because we are told by <laughs> Israel that some of their employees, some U.N. employees, U.N. employees participated in the October 7th attacks. And that information has been found credible by the United States, by Germany and other countries who sided with Israel on that particular issue. That's a little messy for the U.N., Mark, that some of their people may have been involved in helping Hamas on October 7th. It, it, it's, it's messy and the timing is questionable mm. and the timing is questionable so so to give people context the united nations has been uh critical of israel in multiple moments and israel's position is that the united nations like amnesty international like human rights watch like bet Selim, which is their own israeli human rights organization basically they think any international body Almost every international body, I've never heard them say that anybody that is critical of them is not anti-Semitic and fundamentally against the state of Israel. And they have maintained that the U.N. is corrupt and that it does not deserve uh, any kind of standing. So they begin from that premise. When they've been brought to court before, in fact, they often don't even show up or they'll show up to, to one phase and that they don't show up to the next phase because they don't even want to honor the U.N. So what they've done with this release of information on the same day that they get held accountable in international court is make people question the legitimacy of the United Nations in and of itself with a very sketchy claim. But I'm going to assume, for the sake of this conversation anyway, that everything they said is true. Let's say that there are 12 employees who are involved or connected to the October 7th attacks. That would be an awful thing. That would be horrible, indefensible, inexcusable. But we have to understand what it means to be an employee of the of, – they're not U.N. employees. They're UNRWA employees. Uh, so UNRWA, the United Nations Relief uh, Works Agency, is an organization, a refugee organization that was created in 1948, um, really 1949, and, and was put into power in 1951. Um, and the purpose of UNRWA was to deal with the seven to 800,000 Palestinians who were expelled from Israel when Israel was created. Suddenly you had 800,000 Palestinians who were in tents, who were on the ground, who were in dirt, who were rendered homeless in violation of all international law. And UNRWA has become the primary, if not exclusive, way that Palestinians, who, who, who were descendants of those people, and from the 1967 war and in Gaza, get food, clothing, and shelter. It's the way that it, UNRWA runs the schools, UNRWA, runs, UNRWA runs, runs the hospitals, UNRWA runs the social service agencies. They make sure people get loans. UNRWA is everything to Palestinians who live in refugee camps, who live in the West Bank, who are anybody who's been, who's, who's, who's been dis, dispossessed. And so UNRWA is not a small thing. Um, there are 30,000 employees in UNRWA. 30,000 of them, most of them, I believe 98 or 99% of them on the ground are local Palestinians. Um, so, yes, <laughs> it is possible that of the 30,000 people, there's some crossover in, here. In a, in a, yeah. that, that, that 12 of them, that 12 of them might have done something wrong. Yeah, that's entirely possible. But the U.S.'s response is to say, well, yeah, we think the 12 did something. So, we're going to cut off UNRWA funding, which means we're going to cut off funding for. Everybody. I mean, it, it, the only comparison I can say is if, if, if 
Joe Biden tomorrow or the Congress tomorrow found out that a couple hundred people were committing welfare fraud in, 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 in L.A. and they decided to cut welfare off in WIC and SNAP for everybody, for, 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 for everybody. Yeah. and say, well, because there's corruption. And, and I'm going to take it one step further because they say I heard today people say, well, there's a, there, there's a percentage of them that have terrorist ties. That would be like saying in L.A., 10 percent of people on wealth. We find that 10 percent of people who get public assistance have, have a gang tie. Mm. Now, what does a gang tie mean? Does it mean you got a cousin that's in a gang? Hold that thought. Hold, hold that thought. He's, he's, he's warming up. Uh, when we come forward, I'll let him finish that thought. Remember, remember where you are, Mark Lamont, here about do you have a cousin in the gang? Uh, you're making the point brilliantly, and I want you to finish that. There's a lot more to get to, including uh, now starvation in Gaza and the fact that Joe Biden has said he will, in fact, retaliate for three U.S. soldiers killed in the Middle East this weekend. Is this war about to get wider? Our guest is Mark Lamont Hill. You're listening to him right now, and I'm glad about it on Tavis Smiling. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically blind. Black, black, black. You're tapped into Tavis Smiling. Tavis Smiley. Smiley. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. More of Mark Lamont Hill coming your way right about now. In case you've just tuned in, we were talking in this hour about a number of things, but we started this hour talking about the big news on Friday uh, when the ICJ, uh, the uh, UN's highest court, uh, came out with a decision uh, telling Israel to not engage in in genocide, uh, but stopping short of calling for a ceasefire. That's been parsed a variety of ways over the weekend. And we wanted to get to it first thing today uh, with Mark Lamont Hill, I guess, in this hour, author, activist, scholar, journalist, uh, host of his own YouTube channel, just a brilliant brother, uh, trying to help us unpack what this um, uh, UN High Court uh, said on Friday, again, telling Israel no genocide. Uh, and by the way, these are the things that constitute what genocide is, uh, but falling short, stopping short of calling for a ceasefire. This case, once again, in case you just don't, tuned in, this case was brought by South Africa. And we spent some time in the first part of this conversation with Mark Lamont Hill talking about what it means that a nation like South Africa would be the one country in the entire world to bring this case to the ICJ. There was a lot to unpack there. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can always check out the podcast. Uh, But Mark's uh, response breaking down why South Africa was absolutely brilliant. And I recommend uh, you check out the podcast if you missed that part of the conversation. So I the the flip side of all that is that uh, the U.N., uh, is also in a bit of a bit of, a bit of trouble because um, Israel has accused or said publicly that there were a number of UN workers who participated in the October seventh surprise attack uh, on Israel, the Hamas attack. There were UN workers who participated in that, so it's been a little messy for the UN for the last few days. Uh, Germany, uh, the United States, and other countries have sided with Israel um, on that intelligence. Uh, and so um, uh, there's a move now to cut off funding for the organization, for the entity uh, where these persons apparently worked uh, with and for the U.N. when they were involved in this attack on October 7th. And, Mark, you were drawing a parallel. I'll let you finish your parallel. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's two pieces to it. Um, you know, the first piece is just what it means to work for them. You know, again, the U.N. does a lot of on-the-ground stuff. On Election Day, I'm sure in L.A., if it's like it is in Philadelphia, there would there were there are people who do poll work, who, who are poll workers, mm-hmm. you know, who show up and who stand there and, and hand you the card and tell you who you should be voting for. Mm-hmm. If one of them was selling drugs, I wouldn't. They could, the Republicans could put, the Republicans could put on the news, Democratic, you know, members of the DNC caught selling drugs. You know what I mean? Like, yep. there's a way that you can make something that is very tangential, or or, or people who who have a very limited role sound like they are 
central to the organization. I don't doubt that there could be corruption inside of UNRWA. Like every organization, there's corruption. There's mistakes. I don't know if these allegations are true or not, but if they are, it's still 12 people as an organization on the ground that has 30,000. And I think we all know, from history's sake, that Israel would not uh, underestimate or understate how many people were involved. So yeah. it ain't like there's another 200 that they're just being polite about. Mm-hmm. You know, if, it's, if, they, if they say it's 12, you know, it's like space. It might be four and a possible. <laughs> you know? and, mm-hmm. and, and if that's the case, then, then I don't understand why thirty thousand is enough. Why four out of thirty thousand is enough to do um, yeah. the, the the response? But the second piece of it is, they talk about the affiliation and the connection of people to Hamas. And again, the problem is, we conflate Hamas as this, ter- this armed terrorist wing, uh, or, or, we, or rather, we only focus on that and ignore the fact that Hamas is also the government. So, for example, over a hundred journalists have been killed. Um, in in, in in Gaza since since October seventh, which is I mean, uh, it's horrific. I mean, it's, it's unthinkable. Um, and sometimes when they get killed, they say, "Well, they have Hamas ties," and the Hamas tie might be they work for a state-owned radio station. So it, they so they but they can say, "Oh, they got hired by Hamas," or you know, a person they say a lot of the doctors were are Hamas. Uh, connected. And it's like, well, the doctor was appointed. The hospital is a, it's a government hospital. So technically, the whole hospital, you could say, has a connection to Hamas. But you can't just go blowing up hospitals. And then they're saying that people have terrorist affiliations. And this is the one that I was saying before the break that I think is really important um, because affiliations could mean your cousin, your brother, your friend, somebody in your house somebody up the street, you could have went to a restaurant that was owned by somebody who's sympathetic to Hamas, and all you did was go in and get some hummus, and now they're saying you're part of Hamas. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and and, and we, we saw this actually in California, as I'm thinking about it, with the, when they were talking about um, doing civil injunctions against gangs and, and, start, and starting to try and lock people up for, and putting them on a gang list because they were affiliated with gangs. And a lot of time it could be that you got you waved to your cousin up the street who was a crip or you or you know somebody who did this. I mean, if we were to lock up or even be suspicious of any black person in Los Angeles, for example, who 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 got a, a family member that's in a gang or or has a friend who was in a gang. Yep. You know what I mean? No, I, think, I mean, we'd be locking everybody up. No, I take your point. Uh, I take your point. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing uh, to myself because if eating hummus uh, makes you uh, Hamas associated, <laughs> I'm in trouble, man, because I, I, was, I was eating some hummus yesterday. So I take your point. That, that'd be a problem, a real problem. I'm, I'm also laughing because I'm thinking about your brilliant point. And I'm thinking about uh, I, I'm I'm a follower as many of us are of that first century Palestinian Jew named Jesus, uh, and uh, I, I, I was t- it's just to somebody the other day that Jesus had twelve disciples. Let's run the list, shall we? Uh, Judas <laughs> Judas sold him out. Peter denied him. Thomas doubted him. I'm going to stop right there. I tell folk all the right. time, if you get 12 Negroes together, three or four may no good. Just know that. Because <laughs> if, if Jesus had 12 disciples and three or four of them wasn't no good, you know if you right. get 12 people anywhere, anywhere you get 12 people assembled, four or five of them may no good. Just trust and believe on that because uh, you ain't going to do better than Jesus uh. did. And he picked, he handpicked his 12 disciples and three right. or four of them turned on him anyway. So Mark's point is well taken. You get that, you get 30,000 people in an organization Somebody ain't gonna do right. Uh, I digress on that point. Mark don't need my help. I just thought it was funny. That's why I thought I'd add that. Um, let me get serious again for, for for a moment here because what is what is no joking matter um, is this humanitarian calamity uh, in Gaza right now. Yeah. Uh, there's a hunger crisis and people are starving. Uh, people are dying. Um, there are people who are now eating animal feed to survive. The food is not getting in because of. 
the Israeli blockade. In fact, there are Israeli protesters. I mean, let me just give you their side of this as well. The Israeli protesters are, are, are in part uh, unapologetically blocking uh, entrance for some of this stuff to come through, some of the goods and foods and services. They're blocking it because their argument is that we shouldn't let no food in or anything else in, for that matter, until they let the hostages come out. And so you've got a crisis here, and that's both sides of it. Mark Lamont Hill. You know, it, 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 I, 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 first of all, I, I support the release of all hostages, and I think it's important to note that the court also uh, demanded the release of all hostages uh, as, a, as, as an emergency measure. They said that Hamas should release all Israeli civilians. Um, it's one thing to capture military folk. Um, those are political prisoners. Those are captured soldiers. Those are, you know, but, but when you just capture innocent people, that's a war crime. And so we, I support the release of all people. Um, but the idea of saying that we're going to block humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip until these 100 people come home or these 200 people or however many people come home um, is, one, I, I don't support that morally, because you're pun- but also I don't support it legally. Um, legally, it's, a, it's, it's collective punishment, and you cannot, co- you cannot you cannot punish a group of people uh, for the actions of a small number. That's one of the reasons why Israel is, is being accused of war crimes. And you may see them in the ICC just as soon as you see them in the ICJ, um, because you can't cut off electricity and water and fuel to everybody because you don't like what Hamas did. And that's similarly what's happening um, when the people are blocking uh, the road. But I understand their pain, and I understand their frustration. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm less... I'm less because I don't know what I would do if somebody took one of my one of my children. Yeah. You know what I mean? I might be on the on the border too. Sure. But the government has a different responsibility. Yeah. And they have effectively blocked most of the UN um, aid that's come. They've denied people um, security uh, assurances and security clearances to get in. So they've said, "Look, we can't promise it's safe." And then others have just been blocked or obstructed or turned around. Others have been destroyed because of the fighting and the air raids. And so what you have right now, as you pointed out, are Palestinians who are literally. Um, eating out of the rubble, the mm-hmm. very same rubble where probably 8,000 people and maybe maybe 1,000 children are under there as well. Yeah. And so now people are being forced to eat uh, anything they can because there's no food, there's no water coming in. Um, and and 1.7 million out of the 2.2 million people of Gaza are homeless. They're unhoused right now, and they've yeah. been completely, you know, and, uh, and their homes have been destroyed. Yeah. I am not suggesting, watching my time here, I am not suggesting that Israel is engaged in this, but Mark knows full well, maybe we have a minute or two to talk about it as we move forward. I want to cover two or three other issues before I lose at the top of the hour. Um, but uh, this uh, this food shortage um, is because of the blockade, as I said, and you've heard both sides of it, but civilian starvation is a military tactic. It's been done for years, years on end, civilian starvation as a military tactic. Uh, it was stopped. Uh, it was uh, supposed to be a bridge back in 1998 on the world stage, but some people are still using it uh, as a military tactic. Not saying Israel's doing that, but just trust and believe that uh, there have been many wars fought where people uh, were starved to death as a military tactic. I digress on that more with Mark Lamont here when we come forward. This is getting good. Tabitha Smiley. Smiley continues when we come forward. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tabitha Smiley. I got to move off of this given the time that uh, is getting limited here, but uh, we were just talking about uh, civilian starvation as a military tactic. One of our listeners responds. 
Tavish, the Irish famine was a man-made tactic by the British, which is why we Irish call it a genocide. Just making the point that it's been done uh, many times uh, in years past. Let me pivot right quick, uh, 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 Mark Lamont Hill, to cover a couple of things before I lose you here at the top of the hour. Um, I mentioned earlier that um, three U.S. soldiers were killed in Jordan in a drone attack that the U.S. says was launched by uh, an Iran-backed militia. There are concerns uh, that we're going to get pulled into a wider war. President Biden said, as you expected he would, that we will respond in due time. In our own way, uh, we will respond. Uh, and people are getting more concerned today that we may get pulled into a wider war. Your thoughts? I think that uh, we will undoubtedly get pulled in. We're already pulled in. You know, we saw uh, in the Red Sea for the last month, if not longer, uh, you know, unsought a law, also known as Houthis, uh, in the Red Sea saying, look, we're going to block this sea um, and attack ships until the uh, ceasefire happens in Gaza. Joe Biden is bombing um, the Red Sea, bombing the Houthis in the Red Sea. Um, Iran is supporting that. Um, not the U.S. was supporting the Houthis. Uh, they're also supporting Hezbollah in the northern part of uh, of Israel, uh, where we see fighting at the border near the Golan. And then we have now, as you pointed out, at the Jordan-Syria border. So we're seeing war and we're seeing proxy wars. And this only advantages, um, I, th- I think, it, to a large extent, Israel's interests. Now, obviously, Israel doesn't want to be attacked. No one wants to be attacked. Sure. But they've also been waiting for excuses. They've been waiting for a reason, and Netanyahu's been very public about this. This isn't my opinion. Netanyahu's just waiting for Iran to give him a reason. And what we're seeing at the border from the Islamic resistance in Iraq, which is the name of the group, it's like an umbrella organization. The Islamic resistance in Iraq is an Iran-backed uh, armed group. And so, again, if everybody says, well, Iran's fingerprints are on all of these things, and they're potentially training and providing weapons to Hamas, then, you know, now they can justify attacking Iran, which is what Israel has wanted. And that means if, if, if Israel's at war, the U.S. is at war. And so what started off as a, a bomb on October 7th and an, or an attack on October 7th could turn into a full-scale regional war that extends in, in multiple parts, not just of, of historic Palestine, but of the yeah. Middle East. Well, the U.S. is getting pulled into this. Uh, I mean, you read President Biden's comments. He uh, is going to respond. He'll respond, as he said, uh, paraphrasing, uh, in his own time and in, in his own way. Uh, but trust and believe there will be a response, a U.S. response, to these three soldiers being killed in Jordan over uh, the last uh, couple of days, over the weekend. When we come forward in our remaining moments at Mark Lamont Hill, huge, huge story today in the New York Times. Check it out for yourself. About a coalition of black faith leaders. I mean, all, everybody's in this article. Uh, Tim McDonald is in it. Cynthia Hale is in it. Jamal Bryant is in it. And all kinds of folk whose names you know are in this article today with these hundreds of black faith leaders who are demanding a ceasefire right now. And some saying that if they don't, um, we don't. If the president doesn't call for a ceasefire, um, they will deny him speaking in their churches as he can, uh, campaigns, and not just him, but other Democrats as well. It's getting it's, it's getting funky, as one might say. We'll talk about it with Mark Lamont here when we come forward. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. This is Mark Lamont Hill on Tavis Mount. I got four minutes left, Mark. I'll give it to you right quick here. These black faith leaders are stepping up their pressure on uh, President Biden for a ceasefire. Uh, He's campaigning hard in the black community, South Carolina, first up on the docket. Uh, But these black faith leaders are saying no ceasefire, no access to our churches. They're being pushed, as they say, by their parishioners. And I'm talking about black folk all across this country. 
I think it's a beautiful sight. Again, you know, it's black people at our best. You know, we're we're concerned with our own community. We're concerned with our own well-being. We want to make sure that we got food, clothing, and shelter. We want to make sure our schools are strong. We want to make sure that we're not getting terrorized by police. But we also understand that we have a duty um, to the broader community and to the broader world. And as black Christian leaders, they're saying, we've got to think about the least of these. And at this moment, there's in, in Gaza right now, one out of 100 children in Gaza has been killed since October 7th. One percent of the child population has been eliminated in Gaza. Now, we can quibble over the word genocide or not, but what I know is one percent of any group's babies dying is a tragedy, mm-hmm. and it's a sin. And, and, these, and these church leaders are leveraging their power. They're saying, look, Joe, Mr. President, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're not going to um, just hand you our vote. We're going. To, there has to be something at stake. We won't refuse to be a captured electorate. You're not just going to take our vote because we ain't got no other choice. No, we're going to make you do something, and not just the easy stuff. Not just patting us on our head and telling us that you're going to, you know, put some money in in, in the schools and, you know, and and come in our church and smile with us. No, no, no. We want you to have a ceasefire. We want you to make the morally correct decision, even though it's difficult. And since you're so uh, in debt to us, you're so accountable uh, accountable to us allegedly because we make you president and we can unmake you president, mm-hmm. then you have to do, you have to do some different stuff. And that's what I'm happy to see. Yeah. Yeah. I got a minute here. Um, I, I don't, I don't know what, how this is going to play out uh, on the one hand. Um, it's clear uh, from the data that he is in some trouble given the way he has stewarded or, or not <laughs> this drama in the middle East. Yes, Lord. Uh, he's in some trouble on that uh, politically. Uh, uh, no question about that. On the one hand, on the other hand, nobody wants Trump. Um, so I don't know how that plays itself out. Um, you, any, any thoughts on that? I mean, people people can press him on this issue, but what Joe Biden knows between me and you, he ain't gonna say it. What, he, what he's thinking is they ain't gonna vote for Trump over me. And he right, he right. But what he don't <laughs> what he don't know is a whole lot of us telling him to stay home. Yeah, you know, and, and he's he's gonna have a bunch of dis disaffected, uninterested, unenthused voters. You saw in, in Dearborn, Michigan, the Arabs in Michigan said, don't even come. Mm-hmm. We, you, you ain't got, you ain't, ain't nothing you can say to us that's going to make this make <laughs> don't, sense. Don't even show up, yeah. Don't even show up, yeah. you know. And so I think that's the attitude. I'm not, I'm not, I actually think he's right. I don't think these black folk going to vote Trump unless they already was. Mm-hmm. The problem is they might not, they're they, they not going to get their grandbabies out. They're not, they mm-hmm. not getting the church van to pick everybody up. They're not getting that cousin that'll vote if you make them, but yeah. he ain't going to just get off the couch himself. That's what you got to worry about. Yep. It, 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 he's, it, it's always fire, always fire when uh, when uh, uh, MLH shows up, Mark Lamont Hill. And I'm always delighted to have him on this program. Uh, Mark, I'll talk to you soon. Stay strong until uh, until we connect again, brother. Yes, sir. Love you, my brother. Love you back. Nothing you can do about it. More Tavis Smiley when we come forward.